Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Dr. Darby Miller, MD, MPH, is a cornea and refractive surgeon at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville. He is past president of the Florida Society of Ophthalmology and current chair of the AAO Young Ophthalmology Advocacy Subcommittee. Today, we're talking all things advocacy in ophthalmology, what is advocacy, why we need it, and how these issues can influence your practice. Thank you for joining this virtual podcast. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Darby Miller. He is an MD and an MPH and is a cornea and refractive surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Miller is heavily involved in the American Academy of Ophthalmology, currently serving as the chair for the Young Ophthalmology Advocacy Subcommittee. Dr. Darby is past recipient of the AAO Secretariat Award, the Achievement Award, and a graduate of the American Academy of Ophthalmology Leadership Development Program. Dr. Miller is also the past president of the Florida Society of Ophthalmology and has done significant work in advocacy for ophthalmology. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much for having me, my pleasure. Welcome, Darby. We're so excited to talk with you today. I'm really excited to talk about advocacy. And you have a great position because you've been involved in advocacy at the state level and both at the national level, too. So before we kind of jump into everything, can you just give us a brief overview of what we even mean when we're talking about advocacy and then kind of your journey that's brought you here that's gotten you involved? Yeah, absolutely. So advocacy, I guess you can term it in many different ways, but it's usually giving a voice to someone who doesn't have one. For our role as ophthalmologists, when we're advocates, we're actually standing up for our patients, whether it's patient safety or, you know, burdensome regulation that, that delays medical care, but really working with our legislators, whether it's on a state level or a national level to help improve patient care, improve patient safety. I started off as an advocacy ambassador, so as a resident in D.C., and uh, got to attend the Academy's Mid-Year Forum, which I think we'll touch on a little bit more later in Washington, D.C. Every year, they have this, this wonderful advocacy ambassador program. I was one of about 100 residents who was able to attend, and it just completely opened up my eyes to a whole other world of ophthalmology that I was not aware of in the midst of training. I know that you know, as a resident and a fellow, you're looking at the BCSC, you're studying for OCAPs, you're, you know, overwhelmed with clinic and call and surgical numbers, and you don't actually have a, a chance to, to know about this whole other world of, of advocacy until hopefully everyone gets to experience this uh, mid-year forum as an advocacy ambassador. So that's where my journey started. It completely uh, you know, changed the trajectory of my career. As soon as I got done with fellowship, I moved down to Florida and, and, you know, join the Mayo Clinic here. And thankfully, several of our faculty members are, are very involved with the Florida Society of Ophthalmology and the Academy and got me plugged in. Uh, you know, I think I would highly encourage everyone when, when you get asked, do you want to do X, Y, or Z? Just say yes and, and roll with it. And that's exactly what I did. And I just, I'm very appreciative to the leadership here in, at Mayo in Florida and throughout the Academy and the Florida Society of Ophthalmology for allowing me to serve uh, in many different roles. So Dr. Miller, we're all busy in our clinical roles as surgeons or in our communities. Sometimes I think, I think we all recognize that advocacy can fall by the wayside. What do you share with your colleagues, whether they're in Florida or nationally, on you know, why this is something that's important, what we should care about, 
And how does a person who's not get really giving it much attention in their clinical practice, how do they get informed on uh, opportunities or what's being talked about? Yeah, that's a great question. We are very busy. That is one of those difficult balances in life because there's just uh, so much that the work demands of us, but also we have our families, uh, our spouses, our hobbies. And I think advocacy uh, does go hand in hand with the, the work that we do as ophthalmologists. I mean, you can advocate for a patient on an individual level at the slit lamp or in the OR, but this just gives you a better chance to advocate for patients in a general sense. So I think making the time for this, you know, making it a priority is kind of the most uh, importance. Getting involved, you can do this in many different ways. You can stay informed through the Academy. Every single week, the Academy sends out a Washington Report Express. So everything that's going on within advocacy uh, on a national level. They also touch on uh, state issues, but you can get more plugged into your state issues just by joining your state society, which I would strongly encourage everybody to do and not only become a member, but also get involved um, with your state society. Completely resonates with me, everything you said, because I didn't know anything about advocacy until I was an advocacy ambassador as a resident, just like you. And just like Eric said, we're busy, we're clinicians, we're surgeons, we have all kinds of other things we're worried about. And so I feel like a lot of times this is the last on our list of things to care about. How do we learn about the issues and let, I mean, really joining our state society, going to mid-year forum, those are the big ways, but then how do we just engage more ophthalmologists in general to know about these issues? Do we just talk to them in practice? I know it's a hard question, but it's something I've grappled with after coming back from mid-year forum or being involved in our state society. It's something I knew nothing about. Do we start at a resident level? Yeah, I think as early as possible, um, even medical students, I think this should be really part of our training. You look at other professions, whether it's the world of laws and you know attorneys, advocacy is taught from day one. It's something that if you don't advocate for your profession, you know there's that saying, right? If if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. It's it's very true. If you aren't sitting at the table and have a vested interest in your profession and your patients, you will be on the menu. You will not be part of the discussion that that basically forms laws, sets policy, things that directly affect us and our patients. So, I think you know, getting the word out, as you said, the academy does a great job. Um, our state societies are doing a better and better job. But just talking to your colleagues at work, at your academic institutions or private practices, social media is starting to take over also. And I know, Dr. Tuli, you have a critical role in, in forming uh, social media, the, the yo's within the academy, within this, in the Minnesota society. I think this is going to be extremely important going forward because, you know, the next generation may not be attending meetings in person or they they may not be opening their emails, but they'll look at their Twitter account, they'll look at Instagram, they're gonna look at Facebook, they're gonna see what's going on uh, through those different uh, venues, so. Yeah, I love that you said that. It is so important to have lots of different avenues and different platforms to talk about this and podcasts. I tried to look and see if there were other ophthalmology advocacy related podcasts. And so I'm very excited that we're putting this out. I hope that it inspires other people to learn more and, and get more involved. Uh, I'm, I'm pumped about the podcast space, but also Instagram, Twitter, all that. So, so important. I like your comment that you made about the younger, the better. Certainly advocacy, whether you're getting a representative to go to mid-year forum and having leadership sort of uh, vested opportunities for residents. One of the my mentors years ago when I was in residency, it was a guy by the name Marty Kaplan, and he's here in Minnesota. And he used to come once a month 
to the county hospital to meet for breakfast with the residents. And it was just a wonderful way to hear about private practice. He bled advocacy to hold up, uh, you know, everything about our profession that we celebrate and need investing in, not just in our clinics, but on a national level. And I just remember being drawn to these conversations from a very early standpoint. So I like what you said about that. And I think those of us in academic institutions all over the country need to be very mindful about the opportunity we have to connect with residents on all levels. And then once they get out in their private practice worlds or academic worlds to draw them into community in our state societies. You had the opportunity to be the president of the Florida Ophthalmology Society. You know, Andrea and I have leadership roles up here in Minnesota in a similar fashion, but share with us once they are launched, once they're out of our program and in private practices, what's your message on, on your waving your flag to get people involved when you were president or even after on why state societies are so important for individuals and their practices? Yeah, they're critically important. And I didn't fully understand how important they, they were until I got involved. A couple of different things, um, how we can get young ophthalmologists plugged in. One is once they graduate from their respective programs, let's say there's someone who's graduating in Minnesota is coming down to Florida, the academy does make that, that state society aware. So they'll notify Florida and say, hey, listen, there's someone who just graduated from Mayo in Minnesota. They're coming down to Florida to practice. Feel free you know, to reach out to them. So we reach out to all new incoming young ophthalmologists coming to the state of Florida. We encourage them to join our state society. And then we encourage them to actually uh, attend our annual meeting every year. And there are special events. So we have a YO program that's dedicated to young ophthalmologists. We have several different social hours that they can just get to know network with ophthalmologists across the state. So that's one way we can you know, more easily get people plugged in. And, and the Academy does do a great job of helping to facilitate that. Again, I think it does come back to just the knowledge of what's going on within your state. There are certain scope of practice issues, outreach issues, education issues that you know, ophthalmologists, no matter what state you're in, you want to be aware of these issues. You want to be informed. So I guess encouraging people to do that, join your state society. That should be the first thing that people do right out of training. Obviously stay an academy member, but join your state society. Most of these state societies, Florida including, have heavily discounted membership rates. They're one third, you know, one fourth than the normal cost for the first four or five years. And so we encourage young ophthalmologists. We need young ophthalmologists' voices within the state societies. We have Yo representatives on our board, almost every state society does, because we need to hear that voice. We need to hear the input from them. They're the future of our profession. I love that, Darby. I think if anybody's listening, if you're a Yo, even if you're a trainee, get involved in your state society. You don't have to be in practice. And then especially if you're in your early practice and you're not involved in your state society, that's the number one thing to do. I, I completely agree. And I think they're critically important, but there's different issues at the state and the national level too, right? And so being a YO involved in advocacy or state level could be really different than being a YO involved in advocacy at the national level. Do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. There are some issues, you know, that overlap, but for the most part, there are very different issues. So the federal issues that we see right now, you know, we, we just talked about it in your form in DC, but a lot of it has to do with reimbursement, fair reimbursement from Medicare. We were talking about prior authorizations, which 
delay medical care to patients, step therapy, right? So the fail first, the, you know, the patient who was treated by, you know, certain medication for uh, macular degeneration or glaucoma, and then they change insurance plans. And that uh, medication is not considered to be the first available medication for that patient. So they have to fail or try other medications first before they can get back onto their, their medication that actually show that it was helping their condition. And then this VA supremacy project on a national level. So many people, you know, this is this was news to me about a year ago, but many people are not aware that at the federal level, the scope of practice for many non-physician providers is going to be defined very soon. And that includes optometrists um, who we work you know, very closely with to provide excellent care for our patients. But this scope of practice would allow them to perform surgery, including lasers, potentially injections, potentially eyelid surgeries at every VA hospital throughout the country. So this federal supremacy project was one that we were trying as ophthalmologists to have input because we don't want to lower the standards of safety for these patients, for our veterans, for our heroes, right? They should receive the best care possible. So those are some of the federal issues that we um, are dealing with. Now, some of that does cross over into state issues. Scope of practice, obviously, many people in many different states are aware of scope of practice battles that are ongoing. We just had one last year in Florida. Would not have been possible to win that battle without the help of the academy. I mean, I really uh, hats off to the American Academy of Ophthalmology for uh, being there to support us. The state affairs team really did a phenomenal job. I would just implore each and every person, no matter what state you're in, whether I know Minnesota potentially could have a battle soon, just get involved with that state society because they work hand in hand with the American Academy of Ophthalmology to make sure that these scope battles that we can win and that uh, you know, patient uh, safety is preserved. There are outreach you know, programs. You know, we had an issue here in, in Florida where we noticed that kids were not getting properly screened, not having proper vision screenings by a certain age. So amblyopia, by the time we caught it was too late. So we had a, an amblyopia awareness project here. We passed a, a resolution in the Florida House and Senate so that physicians, whether it's pediatricians or pediatric ophthalmologists, were able to screen their kids at an earlier age so that we could pick up amblyopia at an earlier age. So there's a lot of great things that are going on, even on state levels. You can talk about Illinois. They just passed a bill that is trying to curb waste in ophthalmology. So and that's another thing that I think we're working on at a national level. So there is some overlap there, but certainly there are different issues that are on a federal and a state level. I really celebrate the pediatric comments as a pediatric ophthalmologist myself and actually fighting a little bit of a comprehensive versus screening scope battle when I was president of the MAO. We celebrate strong screening programs and creatively bolstering and improving how screening's done all over the country. It's interesting. Can I just ask you, admit your forum, I, my sense, was, I, you, you, the two of you were there. I heard that there was kind of an awareness in terms of funding and resources being cutbacks. PEDS to me was hit disproportionately hard compared to everybody else in terms of its reimbursement for surgical codes across the board. In addition to that, we, we're facing a time where only about half of our fellowships are filling and we're having shortages of pediatric ophthalmologists all over the place. So my question to you would be, what's your take on how much of a voice we can have and what traction we might be making, whether in a world of peds or in other areas in terms of when we see the finances going into healthcare, taking away our ability to provide healthcare? 
Eric, I'm so glad you you asked this. Darby, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just mm. I feel like a lot of people when they hear about advocacy, when they hear that term, they think, oh, that's scope battles. All, all we're talking about is scope. So I'm so glad we're going to talk about these other issues. And reimbursement is a huge one because this is the future of our profession. And if our reimbursements are so impractical that you can't become a pediatric ophthalmologist feasibly anymore, you know, that's a huge issue for our patients. So take it away, Darby, but I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this. It's a huge issue, um, particularly with pediatric ophthalmologists. So, you know, APOS and the Academy worked very hard to try and prevent those drastic cuts to pediatric ophthalmology, and they're still working on that. There's a slide uh, that they show at almost every meeting that shows the last 20 years of reimbursement and how physician reimbursement has really basically flatlined over the last 20 years, whereas you know, hospital and ASC and other reimbursements have really, you know, they've kept up with inflation and more so. Each year, CMS proposes these cuts to ophthalmologists for physicians in general. And that's one of the biggest things that we fight. I will say some of the smartest people I have ever met, uh, whether it's David Glasser or George Williams, Dan Bryslin, I'm just absolutely amazing, smart people that are working with the Academy and pour tens of hours every week into this are trying their utmost to just establish a fair reimbursement system for physicians and ophthalmologists. Cause we don't want a brain drain, right. In medicine, we don't want people saying, wow, I'm coming out with these huge, enormous student loans. And then I'm not getting paid what, you know, I can't even afford to pay a mortgage, repay my loans. It's a constant battle. It's a constant battle. And one that we're fighting, it seems like almost every week that we're talking to legislators, telling them our stories, right? Telling them that, hey, this is going to affect patient care. There is a physician shortage coming. We can't afford to not have the best and the brightest in medicine. We need them there. We need them to take care of patients. But in order to do that, please just reimburse us fairly. Um, and that's that's all we're asking. We're not asking for an exorbitant amount of money. We're just asking for fair reimbursement. Um, so we don't lose those people that right would otherwise go into something like pediatric ophthalmologists, which we desperately need. Yeah, I love that it really is the personal stories that you can share with legislators, because sometimes when you're thinking about these big bills on a large scale, they seem so out of touch with your day to day. But it's absolutely true. When you're talking with the legislators, they want to hear what you're seeing in clinic mm -hmm. and what you're actually going through. And it's those little tiny anecdotes that make a huge difference that can impact our entire profession. And when you're thinking it's, it's not just scope, it's how much it's our reimbursement, it's our future, it's, it's our jobs. And then also how we care for our patients with prior authorization or the different regulations that we're bound to when we care for our patients is huge. And um, I think it's really fulfilling to be able to, like you said, have a seat at the table for that. I totally agree. I mean, I had someone tell me a couple of years ago that if you make an impact in advocacy, there's no better way to affect a huge amount of people, right? A positive way to affect tens of thousands of patients, you know, thousands of eye care providers, you know, ophthalmologists, even optometrists, we can, we can benefit them by fighting for certain things at a, at a federal level. I feel very fortunate to be a part of it and part of this team. Uh, you know, the, the Academy does an amazing job. I'm also very thankful for Mayo for being so supportive. You know, I, I would not be able to do this if Maya wasn't so supportive. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's no different in Minnesota or in Arizona, but the needs of the, the patient do come first in this instance, right? We are there fighting for our patients and our profession. And I just uh, appreciate the, the opportunity to do that. And the fact that Mayo is there to back us up on that. 
That's a good point. Do you think there's a difference in any barrier to entry for those in private practice or in large private equity firms or in academics to getting involved with advocacy? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, certainly with private practice, because you know, there, you know, especially when it comes to scope of practice, right? Because they have such a strong referral base um, from optometrists, and um, they have had some backlash, you know, when they stand up for things that patient safety. If there's a scope bill, and they stand up for patient safety and say, no, you know, someone who's gone to medical school, who's done four years of residency training, and maybe a couple years of a fellowship, they should be the ones performing the lasers. They should be the ones ones performing these injections or, or eyelid surgeries. If they stand up like that, they they do feel the backlash from optometry, which is really unfortunate. So it is a little bit easier to do that in an academic institution because you are somewhat protected. That there isn't much uh, that they can influence as far as our patient referral base. Um, if if you're protected at an academic institution, so there is a difference there, and I think that does put a little bit heavier burden on us in in academics that we do need to be the ones that that does stand up not only for our profession, our patients, but for some of these ophthalmologists who their livelihood could suffer if they speak out, which is really unfortunate, but that we can hopefully fill that void and stand up for them. Yeah. If you are in private practice and feel very constrained by your referral base, I mean, there are ways you can donate anonymously Mm -hmm. or you could still be protected by your state society or, or whatever, but I think it is maybe more challenging in those situations. Yeah, that's a great thing. There are many different avenues. You know, the Surgical Scope Fund, for instance, is completely anonymous. And that's the Academy's fund that I would encourage everyone to contribute to. Also, each state usually has a, a similar, you know, analogous fund. You know, the, the, the Florida Society of Ophthalmology has one called our SOS fund, and that's completely anonymous as well. It's part of the culture that we have to change. What is right is what is right. You know, what is safe is what is safe. And all of us ophthalmologists should be able to stand up for what is right and what is safe for our patients. And um, if all of us do that, people can't be singled out and say, you know, this person, you know, is not allowed to speak out, but this person maybe is. We should all be able to stand up for what's right when it comes to our patients. Well said. Well, I greatly appreciate this time sharing. You know, you just talk about a burning platform of things that we have to act on because we're being threatened, but also the wonderful yoking together and working together on impactful items, whether it's reimbursement or patient safety things, and simply connecting. We just had our first MAO meeting in person. It had a virtual arm, but also in person this month. And it was just a wonderful way to be back in community with each other. And after the season we've been in with COVID, it's just a joy to to partner with each other in in a fresh way and appreciate what our community in our eye care professions are all about. So Mm -hmm. I just, I thank you for the community of this podcast and, uh, and sharing any other thoughts, Andrew? Otherwise, I just want to just share appreciation for everything you're doing for ophthalmology, for Mayo, and for patients. No, that's fantastic. I really appreciate you, Darby. I think for those listening who don't know a lot about advocacy or are curious to get involved, just what you said, get involved with your state society, go to Midyear Forum. Anything else we can do? Just stay informed. Read the emails that the Academy does. Have, they put where so many. They pour so many resources into these emails, and they're also, you know, part of their their Facebook. I think they post some of this on Twitter as well. It just keeps us informed, right? It keeps us in the know, right? So, so to speak, about what's going on on a weekly basis within within ophthalmology, within advocacy. So, but um, really, thank you all very much for for allowing me to be here, for allowing me to to talk with you all. I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was great. Thanks again. 
You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more next week.